Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. That's right, you're on Dirt Radio. It's 10.30 here on 3CR and thank you to Yarra Bug. So I'm Sam and today I have Chloe Aldenhoven in the studio. Hey, Chloe. Hi, Sam. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, for those of you that were listening last week, Chloe was in here talking about um, uh, Vic Gaspan, I'm sure, and fracking. Uh, so, Chloe, you've been behind a campaign that's been incredibly successful, a really grassroots-driven campaign, and uh, I'm sure our regular listeners know all about your work, uh, both within Quick Coal, Lock the Gate and Friends of the Earth. But today we want to talk about how you came to be where you are right now, because this is the series we're running, trying to find out a little bit about the people, and it comes out of... Uh, Every time I do uh, a public event, this is the question that young activists ask. How did you get to be the person you are? What was it that changed your worldview or that motivated you? And so I figured out just from my own reflections that it kind of goes back often to childhood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I want to ask you, what what was it like for you growing up? Did you grow up in a political household? Um, yeah, I think, I think this is an interesting question because I think I have a similar response to you, Sam, that, um, Mm. rebellion is probably some kind of inherent part of my personality (laughs) and it does seem to go back a long way. Um, I, I came from a family that talked a lot about politics and, um, was kind of always, always talking and thinking about current, um, current affairs, but, um, my parents weren't really activists themselves. They didn't really see themselves as political actors, but they were people who kind of had had a lot of ideas about politics. So it was, yeah, always part of the conversation, but definitely I'm definitely not activist born and bred. Yeah. And did you grow up in the city or the country or what bit, was... Bit of a combination. Um, so, yeah, so I say that I'm not activist born and bred, but <laughs> <laughs> um, my, um, my dad was a pilot and he was um, involved in the ANSET strike in 1989 which yep. is the year that I was born and he ended up getting sacked as part of that strike yep. and we there were no jobs for him as an airline pilot in Australia so we actually had to move overseas oh. and I spent the majority of my childhood in Singapore Right. Which is a very interesting wow, place. Wow, I never knew that. You see, this is why we do this show, so I can find out about people. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Singapore is a very interesting place, very yeah. politically repressed and um, uh, very pseudo-democratic. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm, so we lived there until I was about 11 and um, my dad grew up in, the, in country South Australia, rural South Australia, and he kind of thought that I wasn't getting exposed to much realness in the expat world in, in Singapore. <laughs> and so he wanted um, me and my sister to go back to rural Victoria. So we yep. went from Singapore to, to Avoca. Oh, at, um, wow. What a shock. out of Ballarat. And it was the biggest culture shock of my <laughs> life, can I tell you. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I um, grew up for, for all my teenage years in the country and um, – 
yeah, I think that's that was really um, really important for me and really important for my political outlook to to live in a rural country town and. Um, yeah, definitely spurred me into climate activism too, I think. Yeah, right. Mm. So what was the first thing that you remember engaging in? Like I can remember being in high school and walking around the local community with a harp seal petition (laughs) (laughs) because I saw them clubbing them and it broke my teenage heart. Um, So what what was the first thing that you remember actually caring enough about to do something Mm. about? Um, yeah, I think, I think probably the first thing was in, in high school being really touched by the, um, East Timor, East Timorese independence fight. Yeah. And, um, we ended up developing a relationship with a, with a school over there that was being built after, after they declared independence and spent, um, spent quite a bit of my high school time raising money for them. And I think that was probably one of the first things, but I, I guess it, it, environment the environmental issue really started to um, really started to crystallize for me too. I think our generation grew up understanding climate the inevitability of climate change and that it was a, a reality for us. Um, and I think we were probably one of the first generations to experience that. Um, and so it, it quickly became environmental concerns after that. Yeah. So was there one sort of key thing that came along in your you know, late teens, early 20s that kind of said to you, um, I want to do this, like try and do this for an actual job, you know, like this is something that I want to be engaged in. Mm, I, I got I got involved in climate activism at uni um, because I, you know, had a couple of classes where we really went through the extent of it and it was absolutely horrific and it was um, very emotional for a lot of people in those mm. uni classes that um, I went to and, and I got involved in um, in campus activism, but I think probably really I um, after after uni I went over to America and I did an internship at a news program over there. Yeah. And while I was there, um, Quick Coal unfurled a huge banner of Parliament um, talking about <laughs> the how state Parliament, uh, yeah, of Victorian Parliament, yep. saying that coal was <clears throat> the greatest threat to our civilization, and um, it was just such an inspiring moment that I decided that I, you know, I had had wanted to do journalism and that kind of thing, but I mm. just felt that I couldn't do anything for just my own satisfaction and the satisfaction of my own ego until I felt like I'd really put a dent in the fossil fuel industry. Mm. And so I, after that I kind of came straight back home and, and got back involved um, as much as I could with Friends of the Earth and the job kind of came from there. But I just really felt like I couldn't, I couldn't really do anything that I sort of felt was selfish until I really felt like I put a dent in the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, well, I remember that day very clearly uh, that Quick Hole unfilled that banner. It was a great day and it's amazing to see that it inspired you to come back and <laughs> and do stuff, which would have been probably when I met you as well. Mm. Um, so, and and then, you know, you very quickly sort of, uh, in terms of quick coal work, I, I remember you not long after that, what, maybe within the next 12 to 18 months, you were hanging off the side of a coal power plant, mm. uh, climbing. Like that's, you know, that's quite some commitment to stay overnight <laughs> hanging off a coal plant. What were you thinking about when you were up there? Like what 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 motivates you at, 
to be in that scenario and go, I'm going to stay here? Mm, it was it was a really big action. So we decided we were quite inspired by um, a group of UK activists who had gone and they were called No Dash for Gas mm-hmm. because the uh, UK government, because of their climate targets, were making a big push to um, to put in place gas-fired power stations, yeah. and um, which had climate impacts in themselves and encouraged fracking and all that kind of stuff. So they ended up hold, um, holding a... Um, I think it was a 10-day occupation of a gas-fired power station in wow. the UK. And about um, 30 of them managed to sneak into the power station. They climbed up there and they actually shut down the power station for that long. And um, we were really inspired and impressed by by that action. And um, at the time, it was ju- just after the carbon tax had come in. Mm-hmm. And a part of the t- carbon tax package was a massive um, payout to um, coal-fired power stations. So about $5 billion, I think, was going to be given to um, to power stations as compensation for the carbon tax. And we thought that that was um, a massive travesty. There were kind of um, emerging industrial disputes between the employees at Yulon and Energy Australia who own that power station. Um, they had just dug too far, the, the coal mine too far, close to the river and had actually caused the river to um, the riverbanks to collapse. Yeah, a whole yeah. heap of water went into the mine system that, and they pumped that water straight back into the river, which was potentially full of carcinogens that were in the coal mine. So w- we really thought that this was just a, a monumental justice issue for this company that was really screwing over the workers and screwing over the local environment, causing climate change, and then they were mm. getting this, you know, some $250 million <laughs> of compensation that was pretty much going directly to their shareholders and not to their their workers or the local community. Yeah. Um, and um, we really wanted to draw attention to this because it was really getting lost in the debate. So we decided to um, hold a similar action to the No Dash for Gas kids. We thought that we could go and occupy the power station by climbing up one of the cooling towers. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a hunch that it wasn't – we knew that it wasn't going to interrupt electricity <laughs> supply because Yulon had shut down because of that, um, that flooding incident. And um, – so we, yeah, we snuck in after after months of climbing practice. We snuck in, and um, me and my colleague, Cole <laughs> Dom, um, climbed up the cooling tower with um, planning to camp there. So with camping wombs, mm-hmm. um, they call them, and spent the night overnight on the side of the about uh, eighty meters in the air on the side of the. Um, power station which was yeah <laughs> quite quite a like very very physically demanding um mm. and um I, I guess with big with big um actions like that you we really um wanted to i i guess i guess with a situation as as scary as climate change you really want your actions to be commensurate to what you see the problem mm. to be and you want mm. to create some moment that really inspires people to understand the gravity of the situation and also our individual power to confront it yeah and i think that um that's kind of part of the theater of a big civil disobedience like that and that's yeah. the what we really wanted to convey and um and yeah, I hope I hope that some people did find it inspiring. Um, it was damn inspiring. We were uh, at Friends of the Earth tracking you guys, of course, through the night because there was a massive storm that also blew through that night, and we were watching lightning across the sky and going. Yeah, the weather wasn't. Oh. Great. <laughs> so I know when I do things like you and I recently went to Paris together after the Paris attacks, 
around COP21. And I know that I got phone calls from my family uh, reminding me that I'm a mother and I have responsibilities Mm. and why was I walking into a city that was under, you know, militarised terror uh, state of emergency and what if something happened to me? Um, how did your family react to you hanging off the side of, of that yeah, station? Yeah, um, my family didn't know until about a year and a half later when <laughs> for some reason my mum Googled me <laughs> and found the, found the newspaper articles. Oh, that's hilarious. Else. Google told her. Yeah, so oh. they didn't actually know for a long time. I thought it was best not to. Yeah. Um, and Dom didn't tell his family either, but that was a little bit more problematic because it was his, his birthday. birthday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was he getting phone calls up on the tower? Yeah, and... it was really, it was quite annoying actually because we we had a we had a couple of phones up there with <laughs> us, but they were supposed to be. Um, you, we were only receiving calls that were from the ground team to yeah. let us know about what the police were saying or whatever else. And we were getting all of these missed calls from all these extraneous numbers, and I didn't yeah. know what to pick up and what not to because a lot of them were calls to Dom to. Say happy birthday to his <laughs> aunts and uncles and cousins. And... So, yeah, this is this is something interesting when you are in a family that respects your politics but worries about your safety. Yeah, yeah. Know. I think my I think my family respect what I do, but they do think that I'm insane for trying to take on the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so. What what is it in you? Like when we look around the world today, there is there's so much horror. Um, you know, we're in a state of permanent warfare. Uh, the planet is frying. Uh, human rights abuses are just increasing with the refugee crisis across the world. There's so many dark spaces in the world right now. Our own First Nations community here in Australia, um, struggling with deep grief and and abuse. And I know that sometimes I just want to curl up in the corner and cry and just stop because it always feels like there's never enough of us and it's always such a huge battle. And But then there's something inside of me that then sees someone climb the side of a power station or do something utterly amazing that goes, well, I need to get back up. Um, but when I look around the world, there are certain things that, that almost break me. You know, what what issues on the planet at the moment just really – really shatter you in terms of going how do we move through this mm, oh, I think I think there are there are so many um, I mean you, you've talked about a lot of them today I think mm-hmm. I think even the American election at the moment is <laughs> um, is really quite um, terrifying and sad and mm. having spent time in America one thing that really really got to me at the time was um, was the um, violence against um, African American and people of African American people and people of color over there. I yeah. found I found that really difficult to deal with. I mean, people are just getting shot on the street. Yeah. It's um, I, for for them, it's you know civil civil war in a lot of ways on the streets mm-hmm. of America, and that was just really just so incredibly sad after the generations of violence that those people have experienced and the contribution that they've made to that country. It's just mm. absolutely heartbreaking. Um, I, I think, um, I, yeah, as far as, as far as climate change is concerned, we are reaching, we, we're starting to see the collapse of environmental systems. And I don't think that um, it is, it is getting the kind of airtime in our media and so on that it, it needs to be. I mean, mm. so far this year we've had that um, 10,000 hectares of mangroves in, in Queensland that have died off. Yeah. Um, these huge kelp forests in the sea that have started to started to die. The, the 
um, I think it's now um, a fifth of the Great Barrier Reef in yeah. far north Queensland has started to bleach and to die off. These are these are the canaries in the coal mines. These are the, the beginning of um, the we're starting to see the, the beginnings of this environmental collapse. Um, and one one thing that really personally got me over the last couple of weeks um, when. People were talking about climate change 10 years ago. One mm. of the scariest things that they were talking about was tipping points, yeah. which are certain uh, certain um, systems that once they start to collapse, huge more amounts of greenhouse gases will be released into the atmosphere and it will start to accelerate climate change really quickly. Mm. And one of them is the tundra in the Arctic. So... You can imagine in the Arctic, you've got big layers of ice that are covering significant areas of, of ground and underneath them in the soil, um, there's actually a huge amount of trapped methane mm. that is currently frozen into the tundra. But as that ice melts and as the ground below it starts to melt, we're seeing big bubbles of methane start to emerge and yeah. they're, kind of, they're out there in Siberia at the moment as, as almost like you can feel them as bubbles underneath the, um, underneath the earth and they, they're starting to thaw out. They're going to be released and that's going to make mitigation a lot more difficult mm. um, and that has really been breaking my heart over the last, um, the last couple of weeks. Yep. Um, mm. But I, I think that... One, I think one thing that makes um, someone an activist is um, having a capacity to be really um, empathic about these big events that are really seem really disconnected from you personally, but you feel a lot of grief and you feel really emotionally affected by them. Um, but I also think that another thing that makes you an activist is you really see, you really see a way that we can make significant change mm. together, mm. Um, and you really. You yeah you you can um, see it happening happening before and all around you, but you also have a, um, an imagination for how we can actually construct a different reality mm. and um, and I do see that as well. I yeah. really think I I really see how we can start to um, un- unravel the systems that will you know make these these situations are happening. Yeah. Um. How how it affects people is now the question, and I think mm. that that is. Um, that's what we've got to work to figure out mm. and that we have the power to, to make sure that, you know, we, we look after each other mm. as best we can on this planet. <laughs> yeah, it's um, <clears throat> it's really full on and it's really scary and it, it's interesting that grief is being used a lot uh, this year. I've heard people talk a lot about how do we deal with our grief and I guess one of those things which, you know, Derek Jensen talks about is um, letting go of the uh, the sort of romantic notion of hope um, so that you can get to the practical work of how do you respond to this. And I guess part of that is there's been a line between mitigation and adaptation Mm. in terms of, well, if you're not um, fighting mitigation, then you've given in and we've lost and now Mm. we're just dealing with consequence. Uh, And it's the same with the structural issues on the planet around neoliberalism. You know, there's this thing that if you're if you're somehow uh, looking at ways to change the structure and create alternatives, then you're not resisting. So it just keeps going and accelerating. And it feels like we need to do both simultaneously. Right. So we need to resist, but also create alternative pathways. And it seems to me that the community has been really good so far at the resisting component and not so good at articulating, well, what do we want and how do we work through our grief and our fear mm. and adapt and 
deconstruct the systems that are holding these um, processes in place. So how do you how do you get to that? What what you know you've you've been using really unique ways of organising, which is this really bottom up rhizomic approach that we've talked about off air um, for quite a while now, uh, which Lock the Gate is a great example of, and. How do you how do you move communities past their fear and their grief to being able to autonomously hold creative different scenarios? Because as you said, create creativity is often just a part of the activist community. There's lots of musos, there's lots of you know writers. Everyone has this kind of creative capacity, but how do you expel that into the community for them to then hold the space of an alternative? way forward mm, I think that's I think that's a really good question and um we are because we're, we're starting to see the impacts of climate change I think that it's we're well past a conversation just about mitigation mm. it is about mitigation and adaptation um and I actually think um that the latest Mad Max film to come out was um was a an important I, I think a really important piece about climate change actually mm. I don't know people have various problems <laughs> with that Mad Max movie for for various reasons but the reality is when you when resources get scarce you open up these opportunities for um for oppression and you open up these opportunities for a really mm. small group of people to have control over resources that everybody needs yeah and that is that's a real possibility mm. in the face of climate change in the face of more disaster we've you know Naomi Klein has written about how um disasters natural disasters are a space where um neoliberalism sees an opportunity to sweep in and to to start to reconstruct communities along their lines yeah and we need to see these crises as an opportunity to sweep in and to create democratic structures where where power is balanced through the community and not centralized with with one group of people who exploits everyone else. Yeah. Um and I think that that has to be built into our practice and um I think that the Gasfield Free Communities model that we've been using in the Lock the Gate campaign has been a really important example of that. We really have tried to um, make our structures as flat as possible, mm. and um, the I'm, I've talked about it on this program quite a, quite a few times before. But basically, um, communities um, come to us at Friends of the Earth or um, Lock the Gate in other states and um, are worried about the gas field threat, and we show them ways that they um, can go out and comprehensively mobilise all of their community through a survey process, and then they start to do political campaigning um, in their little group off their mm-hmm. own bat. But they're connected to all the other little little groups, and there are now seventy five communities that have declared themselves gasfield free through a network structure yeah and it's about communicating with everybody else about what you're doing having a very clear um idea in your head that what we want is to stop onshore gas fields in our town in our region and across the state mm. we want to stay non-violent in our practice um, all the time which means also means you know not not insulting our or and or being violent towards our opponents um and we um, want to keep keep aligned on the values of keeping what we have for future generations, protecting water, protecting the land, um, and putting com- putting the interests of the community first. Yeah. And we now have this this big network of groups across the state that are working along those principles and are connected in those values in a way that is non-hierarchical. We we by no means um, I'm I'm the Victorian coordinator and Ursula is my counterpart in Gippsland, and we by no means control what happens in the social movement, mm. but we really work to connect people. Yeah. And in 
means that they are empowered to do things in a self-organised way. If um, the Bioduck group wants to make a giant sign with 2,000 sheep spelling out ban gas. <laughs> Which um, was awesome, by the way. <laughs> they, can, they can go and do it. They don't need any kind of approval from me as long as they're being non-violent and they're sticking to yeah, those, those yeah. values of keeping things for future generations and putting the community first. Um, it creates an atmosphere where there's a huge – people feel empowered. There's um, huge capacity for um, – for uh, self-organisation and creativity, um, but you also what you also get is that spontaneity that makes mm. it really confusing for your opponents. They don't know how small or big the social movement is. Um, this amazing thing emerges called create, um, collective intelligence mm. because. One, one person can only be so smart. Actually, if you put a group of people together and you facilitate them under the right conditions, you get ideas that are so much better than, yeah. than what one person could have, have thought of because you've got people who see all different sides of the, of the coin. You've got mm. um, people who have all kinds of different perspectives contributing to the idea. Mm-hmm. And we have just seen that collective intelligence come up with the most amazing things and I really believe that it's that way of organising in a non-hierarchical, self-organised mm. um, way that has created the political power that we've had to to stop onshore gas fields in Victoria to date. And this is such an interesting concept because so much of what holds the network together is based on shared value but also shared trust mm. and and being prepared to let go of condition structuring that we've all gone through yeah. as a process of sort of indoctrination into our uh, hierarchical society, so to speak. And Friends of the Earth has been doing it for 40 years and there's mm. lots of other groups. My group, WACA, as you know, does a very similar thing. Um, and it's what's fascinating for me is that it requires people to really treat each other as community and trust in that. And in some ways that method of organising is actually not just deconstructing neoliberal structures but it's also about evolving or deconstructing NGO structures Mm. Um, because the massive NGOs in our land and across the planet don't operate in that way. Um, And so you're constantly losing knowledge and Mm. you're constantly losing that collective intelligence because people drift off because they've done their porn service or whatever and there's nothing else for them to do because they're not let into the power structure, Mm. right? Yeah. So it's in some ways you're not just uh, breaking – the the system of oppression, but you're also demonstrating that perhaps there's another way for all of us to operate that might be more effective because on the whole we have to say the left is losing the battle mm. in many, many fronts and we never want to talk about that either and, and we probably should be mm. honest with ourselves about can you create change out of the same mentality mm. as that which oppresses you? Yes. You know. And those, and it makes – when you work like that, it creates a system that's very adaptable to mm. different circumstances mm. and I think much more adaptable than the hierarchical models that are used in the corporate world yeah. and everywhere else. So I yeah. think it would actually be a massive advantage to us trying to take on those hierarchical structures working like this. Yeah. Um, and I also think that it just um, – it really, it really liberates you on a personal level as yeah. well because um, not only are you allowed that, that, uh, that opportunity for self-organisation and autonomy and all those kinds of things, but when you're working in a model that really values collective intelligence, it completely devalues ego because yeah. ego will always get in the way of getting the right solution to the problem yeah. because you need to be thinking about what's the best idea, not what's my idea so that I can advance myself in the hierarchy and get more power. Exactly. Um, and I, like, I, I just think, 
that that's incre- like totally invaluable to to anybody you know having it having a system that discourages ego and encourages collective intelligence well that's like we need to do another another series of shows just on that i think um if you're up for it we'll mm. go away and put our brains together if listeners are keen to hear more on our theory of how you actually implement effective change we can uh, we can maybe talk some more about that down the track and we've got a few minutes left and i I just want to bring it back to you, um, not that your ideas are not about you, but um, <laughs> back to you as a person. And I guess this is the question that I've also been asking everybody that I do this interview with because I think it's also something we don't talk enough about, uh, which is what do you do to sustain your soul? Uh, what do you do when everything kind of caves in and you've just had enough of the activist political world? Mm. How do you feed yourself so that you can come back with fresh eyes to that? And how do you deal with burnout? Mm, that's an awesome question. Um, uh, music is yeah. a massive one. I Seems think. to be a big one for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of like a universal human thing, doesn't? Isn't mm. it? It just it's um, so important to to breaking out of. The mundane, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I really, um, I really think, um, really to to get yourself out of that headspace where you're getting, you know, um, beaten down by work or by you know grief about the, the things happening in the world. It's really about coming back and making the ordinary extraordinary again. Really mm-hmm. trying to. Um, Go back to your family and your dog and <laughs> all those all those things that are just about um, just about the magic of of your day to day experience and trying to reground yourself in that. I think is probably my answer to that. Yeah. And, and partying, partying, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Sometimes just cutting loose. Yeah, sometimes just yeah. Cutting loose is a really valuable Having thing. A solid party. Which reminds me, there is a great party coming up for Yester Renewables. Uh, so the Rock for Renewables is coming up on the 14th of August here in Melbourne. Uh, you can find it online. And um, I think that might be a chance for us to cut loose and also support our buddies who have done extraordinary work to get a VRET. But, of course, the crazies are in the asylum. And uh, it looks like we may have to defend those processes of renewable energy. So one great way to beat the system and feed your soul at the same time is <laughs> to come to our, our Yester Renewables Friends of the Earth uh, fundraiser on the 14th of August. And that was my nice little segue. We are completely out of time. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And can we please do this again? And if listeners find it interesting, let us know so that we can continue conversations around grassroots, autonomous, effective change. Thanks, Chloe. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. You've been listening to Dirt Radio. You're on 3CR. It is now right on 11 o'clock. I'm out of here. I'm not even sure who's in next, but uh, we'll see you next week.